This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the rise of right-wing terrorism in the U.S. and the unmistakable link to the violent rhetoric and extreme policies of right-wing politicians. Clips today come from Now This, The World Edition, Criminal Injustice, In the Thick, the David Pakman Show, Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, and All In with Chris Hayes. The U.S. has a problem with extremism, but it might not be the kind you're thinking of. In terms of sheer numbers of attacks in the U.S. over the last decade, one group in particular should stand out to you. Eleven worshippers shot and killed in a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh by a man shouting anti-Semitic slurs. 14 pipe bombs at the doors of leading Democratic politicians and donors and CNN. Two black customers shot in a grocery store in Kentucky by a white man after he failed to make it inside a predominantly black church minutes before. All within the last two weeks. White supremacist and other forms of right-wing violence are currently the deadliest active domestic extremist movements in the U.S., according to data from several civil rights groups that track hate crimes and extremist violence. Southern Poverty Law Center is one of those groups. We spoke with the center's Heidi Byrick, who's been following extremist movements for almost two decades, to help break it all down. Let's just start with the numbers. Over the last decade, right-wing extremists committed more than 70% of extremist-related murders, according to a report published earlier this year by the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. The Government Accountability Office similarly reported in 2017 that right-wing extremists were responsible for 73% of fatal extremist incidents since 9-11. The most common groups victimized by these extremists are those who are Black, Hispanic, or part of a multiracial couple or family. It's important to note that right-wing domestic extremism is an umbrella term under which various right-wing ideologies fall in the U.S. Crimes committed by people who are anti-government, anti-Semitic, homophobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic, and fascist, among other things, also fall under this category. But of all the subgroups that fall under right-wing domestic extremism, white supremacists have committed the most attacks in recent years. Like the Charleston church shooting and the Charlottesville attack. When we talk about terrorism at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we're talking about white supremacy. And what I mean by that is somebody who believes the white race is literally better than all the other races. And these folks usually believe that the United States should be what they call a white ethno state. When it comes to racially motivated hate crimes, black Americans are overwhelmingly targeted. They make up 66% of the victims of racially motivated hate crimes since 1995. A recent report by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University San Bernardino shows that anti-black hate crimes were among the most common of any in at least five of the 10 largest U.S. cities in 2017. And when it comes to extremist ideologies, there have been incidents of attacks inspired by the so-called Islamic State. For example, the mass shootings at Pulse nightclub in 2016 and a San Bernardino Health Center in 2015. But statistically, white American men in the U.S. pose a bigger threat than foreigners committing acts of extremism. But you might not know that based on some of the coverage and political rhetoric surrounding extremism. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. I think Islam hates us. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? 
Journalists have also been complicit in the narrative that often paints white perpetrators as quiet or lone wolves, rather than labeling them as terrorists, as they're often quicker to do with non-white perpetrators. Extremist attacks committed by those who are Muslim receive on average 357% more U.S. press coverage than those committed by non-Muslims, according to a recent university study. If all the domestic terrorists who are white males were covered as heavily and connected together in one story, we would have a different image that would come to our mind. In fact, Muslims and Jews are among the most frequent religious targets of white supremacist violence. Muslims comprised 24% and Jews 54% of victims of religiously motivated hate crimes, according to the FBI's most recent data. You know, in people's minds, they don't really put together that this is a pattern of violent activity connected to one ideology, basically white supremacy, in the same way that they do when they think about um, extremist Muslim violence. But when it comes to actually being charged with terrorism, recent data from an investigative nonprofit, the Nation Institute, shows that when terrorist incidents result in arrest, Muslim perpetrators are far more likely to be charged than far-right perpetrators. A very small number of white supremacist cases do result in terrorism charges. But what about the Oklahoma City bomber? What about the Parkland school shooter? Indeed, all of these people had a well-documented history of racist, homophobic, or anti-Semitic views. There is a very, very narrow range under um, the law that applies to domestic terrorism where someone can actually be charged for terroristic offenses. It usually involves uh, things like, did they use a weapon of mass destruction? So you could have a person committing an act of terrorism internationally that is exactly the same as someone doing it domestically, and you're going to get two completely different sets of charges. Though there are varying definitions, under the federal U.S. Criminal Code, domestic terrorism is defined as, quote, acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state intended to intimidate the population and influence the government. Byrick says domestic terrorism legislation tends to be stronger at the state level than federal. While some politicians have called on the government to pass a domestic terrorism statute, other people say that would be federal overreach. It's also important to note that different groups have different standards for tracking extremist violence. But no matter which way you look at it, data overwhelmingly show that white men are committing more acts of violent extremism in the U.S. than any other group. And it's on the rise. The number of hate groups in the U.S. have been ticking up in the last few years. White supremacist murders more than doubled from 2016 to 2017. Hate crimes also surged. And this hate has found a home online. Major tech platforms, including Google, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, have come under scrutiny over whether they're doing enough to monitor and block this hateful rhetoric. Increasingly, white supremacists with significant followings have been booted from the platforms, but tech companies also face pushback over whether those actions amount to censoring free speech. Byrick says this kind of thinking isn't likely to go away anytime soon and that everyday citizens who want to combat this problem can write letters to tech companies and local representatives to lobby for increased oversight. But ultimately, she says, it's up to the government to track these movements more closely. White supremacy started with our constitution. It's, it's part of our history. It's something we battled against for decades to get equal rights for people of color. And if we want to get rid of it, we're going to have to defeat, we're going to have to first of all realize how dangerous it is and then defeat that way of thinking here at home. 
with all the anger and really vicious rhetoric starting to come from one side of the political spectrum, the anti-Semites crawled out of the dark corners and crawled out of their holes. They coalesced, of course, on the Internet. Journalists with Jewish names were targeted, identified as Jews, and vilified. And pretty soon, this sort of rhetoric, words, images, you name it, began to cross into the mainstream. And of course, Jews were far from alone, usually not even the primary targets of these haters. Vitriol and hate against African-Americans, against Muslims, against Latinos, and especially against immigrants flooded into the culture. And it went largely unopposed, sometimes was even spread by the most important figures in one of our mainstream political parties. Then in 2016, reports of anti-Semitic incidents went way up. In 2017, they spiked. It was the largest year-over-year increase ever in reported hate crimes against Jews. And there was violence. Violence with racist and political underpinnings. Just one example of many. A racist man who wrapped himself, literally wrapped himself in the Confederate flag, killed nine beautiful souls at a Bible study group at the Mother Emanuel Church in the South. And then, of course, came Charlottesville. The Unite the Right rally there in August of 2017. The street riots and the killing of Heather Heyer by a Nazi racist thug in his car. And there was that march, that march the night before. Hundreds of these well-dressed young white men carrying torches through the community and the campus chanting, Jews will not replace us. There was a small group of others brandishing assault rifles standing outside a synagogue there in Charlottesville, just standing there with their weapons, sending a message of intimidation and threatened violence. Those things gave me a sick, kind of cold feeling. A large, torch-carrying group of men yelling anti-Semitic slogans, others there to support them and cheer them on. This did not feel to me like the America that I grew up in, the country I grew up in, feeling safe and secure to be who I was, to bring my family to worship services, to express who we were publicly, any way we wanted. Well, yes, this was America in 2017 and 2018. And there was the president, the president of the United States, commenting on those events in Charlottesville. After being forced, you could tell, into a statement condemning the violence and murder, he didn't want to make that statement, you could just tell, blaming what happened on people, quote, on both sides. Now, I really hate sports analogies, but I can't help it here. I mean, condemning, rioting neo-Nazis and racists and their supporters has got to be the easiest ground ball you'll ever get in politics. And the president didn't just fail to make the play. He didn't just make a mistake. He really showed where he stood by backtracking on his more conciliatory statement that he'd been kind of forced into. 
The Nazis who came to Charlottesville to start trouble, foment violence, make threats, and actually inflict violence were not fully to blame for what happened. And some of those people there were, quote, very fine people and not Nazis at all, just people concerned with statues of Robert E. Lee. And now, a year and a couple of months later, we have this. Eleven souls murdered in Shabbat services in synagogue, murdered by a man saying that Jews must all die. A man who posted on social media that Jews uh, through the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society were responsible for bringing the so-called caravan of Central American immigrants toward our borders, quote, to kill our people. Motivated by these, quote, facts, he wrote on the Gab platform, quote, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. Close quote. Not very long after that, this anti-Semitic troll took an AR-15 and multiple handguns to Tree of Life Synagogue and slaughtered Jews at prayer because they were Jews, just the way that Dylan Roof slaughtered black people in Bible study at Mother Emanuel because they were black. I heard an interview in the last day or so on National Public Radio with the CEO who runs that platform called Gab, a sort of Twitter for folks who feel they're unwelcome on Twitter itself and other platforms where they've been banned for using hate speech and violent rhetoric. Uh, he defended Gab. Uh, it doesn't allow threats, he said, and he saw no, quote, direct threat in what the synagogue killer had said. Now, this might best be described as willful obtuseness. The killer's statement means, in case anybody needs an explanation, the killer is saying in plain English, anyone can understand, quote, I don't care how this looks. I'm going to take action. The Gab manager knows this, just like the rest of us. Then he and the reporter uh, began to argue about censorship. The Gab CEO said censorship isn't the answer. The answer to bad speech, he says, is always more speech. Now, that's right. Without a hint of irony or even the barest awareness of history or context, this guy quoted the great Jewish Supreme Court Justice, Louis Brandeis, in his famous opinion in Whitney versus California. Unbelievable. But I was actually quite disturbed by this whole conversation, the entire report, because the issue isn't censorship. The issue isn't what the law or the government should do about this sort of hate speech and this sort of rhetoric. The First Amendment says that we can only block or stop speech when it creates an immediate threat of violence or incitement to violence. But that's really not the issue here. What we need is for everyone, the guy who runs Gab, the president of the United States, 
every political figure to acknowledge that words have meaning and consequences. Words can move people to violence, to acts of hate, and can indicate that real danger is present. So, Gab CEO guy, fine, don't censor, but call it out. And when someone says they're, quote, going in, they're going to take action. Do something. Alert the authorities. All of us have to call out hatred and bigotry and calls for violence and announcements of violence. We must not tolerate this. and We must not give it the assumption that it's normal. When a mainstream political figure watches his supporters beat people at one of his political events and then gives his approval, it's not normal, it's not acceptable, and it has to be called out, even by that political figure's supporters. When a president praises a congressman who assaulted a reporter during his campaign for having the audacity to ask him a question, that praise is not normal, not acceptable, must be called out. You know, I can tell you here about the law. We can, we can talk about hate crimes and what they do and how to prove them. We could talk about laws protecting speech. We can talk about what we might do to control gun use by those who pose a danger. But in my opinion, that isn't what the problem is right now. It has to become unacceptable again to say our political opponents or the press are the enemies of our country. It has to be unacceptable, not normal to use the rhetoric of hate to describe those with whom we disagree. And all of those who preach hate, who use violence, who threaten violence, who use the rhetoric of violence must be called out as wrong and beyond the pale. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, the sock company with a heart of gold and the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. Bombas socks are chock full of features from their honeycomb arch support system to the cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness. Add in the super soft cotton material they use and it feels like a hug around your foot. So whether you're a runner, power walker, or power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. And even better news for those of us who try to shop ethically, Bombas is a certified B Corporation, which is sort of like fair trade or certified organic, but for corporate business practice and their impact on workers, suppliers, the community, and the environment, which is to say that doing good is embedded right in the fabric of each sock. Most famously, for every pair of Bombas you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need because socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, but it's rare that anyone thinks to donate them, so Bombas stepped in to fill the gap. So, to support their mission and get 20% off your first order, go to bombas.com left and use the code left at checkout. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash left and the offer code left and you'll get 20% off your first order.
in terms of Trump's rhetoric, like the lies that are coming out, it, the direct cause to Squirrel Hill, do you feel like it was a direct link? I mean, yeah, there definitely was. And Adam Sorer, The Atlantic, I think he wrote an excellent piece that connected those dots. I think Mike German also made a good argument for this. But yeah, I know just from covering these guys years ago that they've been waiting for a messiah of, of sorts to break out into the wings and to kind of represent what they've been talking about at lower frequencies, to bring that into the spotlight, to embolden them, to empower them. And I think that as we are learning about Bowers, a lot of them have at least maybe initially saw that in Trump. And then after the events of Charlottesville, because, you know, this whole conversation about who's the most authentic white supremacist is just a, you know, downward death spiral. I think a lot of them just said, yeah, he's, he's not enough. We got to take it farther. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I, I really think that Trump kind of blazed that path, but there's always going to be someone who's who's like, no, we, ha- we have to make a more declarative statement. And I think that's all the more important why Trump has to make a more declarative statement. I mean, I think that he could stamp this out if he pursued white supremacists with the same gravitas, with the same aggression that he pursues, you know, caravans and people at the border. Right. Um, I think that this could be stamped out. We have the resources <laughs> and it's not like, the, you know, the FBI and, and other law enforcement agencies don't know that these guys are, are, are in the wings. Before we go to you, Mike, I just want to quote from the Adam Sober piece um, in The Atlantic. This is what he wrote, and it's pretty chilling. He says, much of the mainstream press abetted Trump's effort to make the midterm election a referendum on the caravan. It was an overwhelming topic of conversation on cable news where Trumpists freely spread disinformation about the threat the migrants posed, while news anchors displayed exasperation over their false claims, only to then invite them back onto the next day's newscast to do it all over again. Yep. All right, Mike, that, that was just some context. Right. So you're on pins and needles because, yes, we there is information about these kind of people. Right. And Adam's been writing very well on this topic for months now. So I, I encourage people to go and read those. Um, I think we have to be very careful when we talk about causes, right? Millions of people heard these messages. Hundreds of thousands of people are on these social media platforms that neo-Nazis and others participate in. And it's thankfully, knock wood, a a small handful who actually commit violence. And when you look at them, often they were violent before they were part of some movement. You know, if you look at uh, Cesar Sayak, he had, had previously been arrested for making bomb threats, right, long before he became a Trump fanatic. So I think what we have to understand, though, is that it's different when it's an authority figure who is giving the green light to this type of activity. And that's what has troubled me so much from the beginning of the Trump campaign, Mm. that he was encouraging the violence, that he was encouraging the anger, the sense of victimization, that we are under siege, that there are these foreign hordes that are coming in, whether they were Muslim, whether they were Latino. So that creates a very different condition. And then we saw all these far-right riots where the police lightly policed them. And I mean, we've seen police handle protests in extraordinarily aggressive manners in Standing Rock, in Ferguson, in Phoenix, in Washington, D.C., where they arrested 200 J-20 
anti-Trump protesters and charged them all with felonies. What's a J-20? Uh, January 20th uh, oh, okay. was the day after the inauguration when okay. January uh, there 20th. was a, a large anti-Trump rally and some windows got broken. Okay. Uh, and they went through trials. Fortunately, juries saw through it and, and, and acquitted, and, and they finally dropped the cases. But how come we didn't see that same aggression targeting these groups? Mm. And now we're in a problem because ProPublica did some great reporting on the Rise Above movement, and Frontline aired a documentary this summer that finally coaxed the Joint Terrorism Task Force in taking action against this one small group they focused on. But if you look through Robert Bauer's gab, account, there are people saying, hey, the recent arrests of these groups show that the game is over, right? That our association with Trump is now broken and we have to start acting. And that, I think, is what I have been warning about, that at some point there was going to be a schism. And now these groups have had two years to organize, to recruit, to get stronger and to feel empowered and to feel that the police and authority figures are actually supporting their violence. And that's when this becomes really dangerous. So, Mike, are we just doomed to keep having more of these attacks while Trump's rhetoric continues? And also, Mike, I mean, a lot of us have experienced um, a level of anxiety about the FBI. We've thought a lot more about the FBI than we ever have in our lives. What about the FBI in all of this, too? It's troubling that the FBI has not been more aggressive when the state and local police have not been. When I first started seeing these very violent riots and the police weren't intervening, I assumed that, okay, maybe somebody made the determination that it would be even more dangerous for the police to try to intervene, let them separate, and we'll pick them up later. But that didn't happen for the better part of a year, and then has focused on only a few individuals rather than looking at this problem holistically. So I am concerned. I'm concerned with this reticence to use the word terrorism when we discuss far-right violence. Is that a policy, like the FBI will not use the term terrorism, domestic terrorism, when tied to far-right violence? So this goes back to Jim Comey refusing to call Dylan Roof violence at the Mother Emanuel Church, terrorism. And it's astonished me because I worked undercover in neo-Nazi groups in the 1990s, and nobody hesitated to call it terrorism. Nobody suggested we didn't have sufficient laws to justify our investigation and to secure effective prosecutions. So I don't, I'm not sure where this came from, but there's this push right now that, again, has been going on since about 2015, where the Justice Department officials are saying we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, so we need more power if you want us to target these groups. And that's just not true. In fact, the Brennan Center is releasing a report this week that will show that, that there are 57 crimes of terrorism defined in federal law. 51 of those apply to domestic as well as international terrorism. So the government has ample authority to justify deeper and more comprehensive investigations of these groups that produce violence. And again, there are lots of people who are neo-Nazis, lots of people who I met who, who fervently believed in these noxious ideas, but would never harm anyone. We have to make sure we're focusing on the people who are violent and the people who are engaged in criminal activities and preparation of violence. Yeah. And that's what we did in the early 90s. And I'm surprised and dismayed that we're not more effective at, at that today or even understanding this threat.
Where to start after this weekend? Uh, I guess with the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania synagogue shooting that took place, this was the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in the history of the United States, according to the Anti-Defamation League. It happened during Shabbat services on Saturday morning over the weekend. Eleven people were killed. Six were injured. This is a progressive egalitarian Jewish community. The victims ranged in age from 54 to 97 years old, 97 years old. The perpetrator we now know was a 46 year old white American born man who entered the synagogue shouting all Jews must die a scene of uh, just total chaos for about 20 minutes worth of shooting with naturally an AR 15 rifle as well as three handguns that the individual was armed with. And even though the shooting itself lasted about 20 minutes, the suspect then ended up hiding in a room in the synagogue for over an hour to an hour and a half. I forget the exact amount of time. Eventually crawled out of there, surrendered to police. And as police were taking him into custody, said that he did it because, quote, all these Jews needed to die. Arrested, charged with dozens of crimes, his profiles on various social media websites, including one that I don't even want to name because it's become a haven of all sorts of white supremacy and extremism, was riddled with anti-Jewish material. Uh, He seemed to believe that there was a genocide of white people taking place and that at least to some degree it was the Jews that were responsible for that. Uh, more than $400,000 as of yesterday, I haven't even checked the number this morning, more than $400,000 already raised towards a million dollar goal for the victims of the shooting. And immediately after this incident and incidents like it, an argument starts over whether this was influenced by Donald Trump in some way. And let's start first with the case that the defenders are making who are saying, no, 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 this guy hated Trump because he thought Trump was too pro-Jewish. This guy saw Trump with his Jewish son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his converted to Judaism daughter, Ivanka Trump, and believed that Trump was actually Jewish-owned and part of the problem. And to that I say, first and foremost, Trump need not be personally anti-Semitic to be responsible for the culture that foments this. The anti-Semites and the white nationalists and the white supremacists and the radical right have been emboldened by Donald Trump's rhetoric and by Donald Trump's presidency. They literally said this to me. Richard Spencer, for example, who is, I guess, by some considered to have coined the term alt-right, a white nationalist, a white supremacist, a white separatist, a Uh, identitarian, as he described himself on the program, I interviewed him. He told me, he said, David, we know Trump can't just come out and say all the stuff. We accept that he has a Jewish son-in-law and Jewish daughter, but we get the message from him. We understand when he uses the term, uh, I am a nationalist, as he did last week for the first time. He is signaling to the individuals that are uh, 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 of these ideologies that he is as much their guy as any other president in America in recent American history. Richard Spencer told me that he understands when Trump talks about 
whatever term, America first, or we've got to shut this down, they shut down Muslim immigration until we figure out what the hell is going on. All that stuff. Uh, as Martin Luther King said, I believe that this quote was um, actually meant, uh, was, was given in a eulogy for a different type of, of horrible crime, murder, uh, that, that Martin Luther King spoke at, but it applies here. He said, quote, we must be concerned not merely with who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. And when you look at any serious radicalization research, nowhere does it say that the radicalizing catalyst must personally believe the stuff that the radicals end up believing. Full stop. No further clarification or detail needed. There are more hate crimes against Jews than against any other racial minority based on 2016 data and a great way to fight anti-Semitism. And I'm saying this to the left and right, but of course, it's mostly the right that's actually committing the violence. When I talk about the problem of anti-Semitism on the left, I'm not talking about the problem of violent anti-Semitism primarily from the left. A great way to fight anti-Semitism is to actually fight it. Don't write off Holocaust revisionism and anti-Jewish conspiracies and stereotyping as something that we don't need to worry about because, quote, Jews are doing fine right now. Don't vote for candidates at any level of government that espouse or embolden anti-Semitism, regardless of whether their daughter converted to Judaism or they have a Jewish son-in-law. Uh, the reality is that there were a ton of people like this guy who shared this guy's ideologies, like the MAGA bomber at Politicon last weekend. And that's why there was a big security presence. I spoke with some of the other panelists that I was, I was working with at Politicon. We spoke privately extensively about our concerns about the radicalization of people and the emboldening, not really of the ideas because the ideas have always been there, but the emboldening of their willingness to go over the line into real world action as a result of those beliefs. And right now there are countless people with the same beliefs as this guy from the synagogue and the same beliefs as the MAGA bomber. And they are very close to being pushed over the line into real world violence. And that's where you understand that this both sides arism of we just need to deal with violence no matter where it comes from. Well, it's mostly coming from the right. When we conduct serious inquiry as humans, we should seek to separate ourselves from that which we wish to be true. It's sort of a primary principle of science and skepticism. The reality is that you can talk about the guy who shot Steve Scalise if you want. And I talked about him extensively, but most domestic terror is right wing. If you include radical Islamic terror, which I believe you should, extreme religious dogmatism that fuels violence is definitionally right wing. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce, plus a breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. 
Casper now offers three mattresses, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, as well as a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure an overall better sleep experience, all designed, developed, and assembled in the U.S., of course. Casper offers affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and sell directly to you with free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. Plus, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. But as a Casper owner for years now, I can vouch for the fact that it's very unlikely you'll ever feel the urge to return yours. The fun starts the moment it shows up in that impossibly small box, and kids of all ages ooh and awe as the Casper is released and grows to full size. It's not just a mattress, it's a physics lesson in a box. You can Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best and offer code best for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. was a scene at a candlelight vigil in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Saturday night, just hours after a gunman opened fire at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Eleven worshipers were killed in what's being described as the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. The victims have been identified as Cecil Rosenthal, his brother David Rosenthal, Melvin Wax, Irving Younger, Daniel Stein, Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Bernice Simon, and Sylvan Simon, a married couple. They ranged in age from 54 to 97. Six others were injured, including four policemen. The worshipers were gathered on Saturday morning for Shabbat services when a 46-year-old white man named Robert Bowers entered the synagogue armed with an AR-15 and three handguns. He yelled, all Jews must die, as he opened fire on worshipers. When Bowers was finally taken into custody 20 minutes later, he reportedly told a SWAT team officer he wanted all Jews to die. This is FBI Special Agent Bob Jones. This is the most horrific crime scene I've seen in 22 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Members of the Tree of Life Synagogue conducting a peaceful service in their place of worship were brutally murdered by a gunman targeting them simply because of their faith. Just before the shooting rampage, the gunman, Robert Bowers, wrote a message online saying, Hyas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. Hyas refers to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, a humanitarian aid nonprofit group that provides assistance to refugees coming into the United States for more than 130 years. He posted the message on Gab, a site frequented by neo-Nazis, white nationalists and far-right users kicked off Twitter for racism or harassment. The shooting rampage caps a hate-filled week in America.
On Wednesday, a white man with a history of violence fatally shot two African-Americans at a Kentucky grocery store following an apparent failed attempt to attack a black church. On Friday, authorities arrested an avid Trump supporter named Caesar Sayoc, who's accused of mailing 14 bombs addressed to CNN and political opponents of President Trump, including the Clintons, the Obamas, um, as well as George Soros, Tom Steyer, Senators Kamala Harris, as well as uh, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and others. For more, we go to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where we're joined by two guests. Dr. David Glosser is with us. He's a retired neuropsychologist who's volunteered with Hyas in Philadelphia, helping refugees resettle there. He's also the uncle of Stephen Miller, a key political advisor to President Trump, who has pushed for a crackdown on immigrants. David Glosser recently wrote a piece for Politico magazine headlined, Stephen Miller is an immigration hypocrite, I know because I'm his uncle. And we're also joined by Ari Lev-Fornari. He's a rabbi at Koltzedek Synagogue in West Philadelphia, who's worked with Hyas as well. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! David Glosser, let's begin with you, your response to what took place in Pittsburgh on Saturday morning, the murders. Good morning. Before I begin, I'd like to express my condolences to my many friends and relatives in Pittsburgh and specifically in the Squirrel Hill region where they live. We've now uh, been subject to the consequences of our political leaders abandoning their moral responsibilities. The question's been asked, what happens when hate speech becomes legitimized and it becomes acceptable in our political discourse? to condemn and vilify innocent people on the basis of race, religion, national origin, or color? The answer has made itself very clear in the last few days and in the last week with the pipe bomb uh, attacks upon political opponents of Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump has uh, made it his policy to vilify and dehumanize Hispanics, Muslims, non-whites, calling them subhuman animals that are infesting our country like so many insects or rats. Make no mistake about it. This is the same kind of propaganda that is identical to the racist rants at Nazi party rallies in Germany in the 1930s. Now Trump spews the same poisonous messages to his supporters and claims innocence when this inflammatory vitriol is sprayed over society. He's, he claims innocence now that this, uh, this political gasoline catches fire and people get hurt and killed. I'm horrified by it. I'd love to say I was surprised, but I'm not. More shockingly, the Republican Congress has tolerated his, vilifi his vilification. Where have been their cries of outrage? They're the so-called responsible people in our country in, our, in positions of political leadership. Their silence has been deafening. I would say that this silence tends to legitimize the crazy conspiracy theories, the hate speech, the threats, the violent acts of the most noxious white nationalist elements of the American political spectrum. Mr. Trump is even unashamed to tell us that among the chanting Nazis in Charlottesville, there were many fine people, drawing a false moral equivalency between
those who are protesting against these kinds of actions, and the Nazis themselves. Should we now be surprised that well-armed white nationalist bigots, uh, isolated, isolated, friendless loners, uh, seeking validation for their empty lives, that they that they act out on their hate? I think not. Now, Mr. Trump didn't pull the trigger in the synagogue. He didn't mail those bombs. But for the first time in 50 years, he's made bigoted hate speech in America, a legitimate tool of political manipulation. His endless barrage of excited hatred, threats, and lies has consequences, as we have seen. I regard Mr. Trump as a hopeless moral imbecile, indifferent to the deadly consequences of his inflammatory conduct. But those politicians who know better still do not say much. They don't stand up and loudly denounce his hate speech. They don't denounce his lies. They're hypocrites. They're cowards. Their deafening silence condemns them more loudly than any courtroom ever could. In October of 2016, just a few weeks before that year's presidential election, as I believe we reported on the broadcast at the time, three members of a right-wing militia group were arrested by federal authorities for planning to detonate explosives at an apartment complex in Garden City, Kansas, with Somali Muslims specifically the targets in this uh, in this planned bombing. The attack uh, was to have taken place the day after Election Day in 2016, as the three white men were uh, recorded by law enforcement calling the immigrants cockroaches and, frankly, much worse than I can repeat here on FCC radio. These were uh, recordings that were made uh, apparently by the feds, which caught these guys red-handed before this plot could uh, could come to fruition. An FBI affidavit read at the time of uh, at the time of the arrest and the charging in late 2016, quote, these are militia groups whose members support and espouse sovereign citizen, anti-government, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant extremist beliefs. Again, that was before the election and thankfully before these jerks were able to carry out their deadly plot. The investigation uncovered stockpiles of firearms and explosive materials, as well as a manifesto, uh, with one of them claiming that, quote, the bombing would wake people up. The only good Muslim is a dead Muslim, one of the men is heard saying in the uh, in those uh, recordings. If you're a Muslim, I'm going to enjoy shooting you in the head, he said. The suspects plan to attack this housing complex where approximately 120 people live and where one of the apartments was used as a mosque, according to officials at the time. Well, those men have since been convicted in that uh, planned bombing. And on Monday, attorneys representing one of the Kansas men convicted of that 2016 plot to massacre Somali Muslim refugees 
Uh, one of those uh, men, his attorneys, has asked a federal judge to consider a more lenient sentence for him, arguing that President Trump's inflammatory rhetoric should be taken into account as the, quote, backdrop for this case. Patrick Eugene Stein face, is facing life in prison for conspiring with the two other men to carry out that attack. On Monday, his attorneys filed a memo in U.S. District Court in the District of Kansas requesting that Stein receive a sentence of no more than 15 years instead of life. They note that Stein was a, quote, early and avid supporter of Donald Trump. And they argue that the climate in the months leading up to the 2016 election should be taken into account when evaluating the comments from the men at the time that prosecutors had used to build their case against them. During the trial in the spring, prosecutors played back recordings in which Stein described Muslim immigrants as, as I said, cockroaches that needed to be exterminated. And he talked about killing Muslims with weapons dipped in pig's blood. That sound familiar? Two months before their conversation took place, Donald Trump had referenced a dubious uh, tale about General John Pershing killing Muslims with bullets dipped in pig's blood. He repeated that several times, I believe, on the campaign trail. The uh, James Pratt and Michael Schultz, uh, who are Stein's defense attorneys here, wrote in their sentencing memo, memo that the court cannot ignore the circumstances of one of the most rhetorically mold-breaking, violent, awful, hateful, and contentious presidential elections in modern history. Someone, they wrote, normally at a three on a scale of political talk might have found themselves at a seven during the election, they argue. A person like Patrick, who would often be at a 7 during a normal day, might go to 11. In that sentencing memo, Stein's attorneys wrote that their client feared Muslims, quote, because of what he learned about them on the Internet and the videos he watched on YouTube from conservative talk show hosts like Fox News's Sean Hannity. Stein is described in the documents as the prototypical, quote, lost and ignored white working class voter who helped elect Donald Trump in 2016. Trump, of course, has faced accusations that his rhetoric is uh, responsible for the recent spate of political violence from the mass shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue over the weekend to the mail bombs last week received by some of the president's most prominent critics. He and the White House and his allies in the GOP and on Fox News have pushed back on those claims, implying that Trump bears no responsibility whatsoever and that it is just political bias in the so-called fake news media. You know, the real enemy of the people who Donald Trump continues to describe them. They are actually uh, behind uh, the, the anger and the resentment and the violence and the death that we are now seeing in this country. we got here, we're here, and where we are is at an unprecedented place in American history. 
We have never had a president of the United States do what this president is doing. He is stoking a cold civil war in this country, and it has turned hot on the periphery. This man, Bowers, what, what he said was when he went in, he said, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw the optics. I'm going in. And he went in to kill Jews, the Jews he believed that were financing the caravan, the invading army, like a panzer division that is threatening the southern border, an army that is racked and riddled with disease. The same type of rhetoric, the same type of propaganda that you would have seen in Germany in 1938, the dehumanization, turning people into infested vermin. What Trump is doing is stoking and inciting for the purposes of political power, the worst amongst us to take action in his name. We have a situation where, but by for the grace of God, the largest mass assassination attempt in American history was avoided that targeted amongst them two former presidents of the United States. Every one of those people was a target of Donald Trump's. And this man, a fanatic, was radicalized by Fox News, by talk radio, by a right-wing propaganda machine that is as sophisticated as it has turned deadly. How do you, we, we end up in these situations sometimes of, you know, this false equivalency, this sort of, it's hard to get your, your arms around the asymmetry in American political life at this moment. And I imagine you have lots of people, you spend a career in Republican politics, right? How do you communicate about the, the, the abnormality of what has formed on the right at this particular moment? Because people say, well, you know, the left, they've got this and that. And it's true, you know, you can criticize, we criticize Sheldon Adelson. You, you can, there's all sorts of ways to criticize George Soros. There's all sorts of ways to make your contentions in American politics. It's rough and tumble. There's something distinct going on in the American right. How do you communicate that to people that exist on the American right? William F. Buckley's great contribution to America and to American conservatism was to kick the crazies out of the conservative movement. Probably a longer discussion than we have time for tonight, but unfortunately, looking back, that the word liberal became an epithet because liberalism, small l liberalism, yeah. right? Conservatism is a root branch of it. And the Democratic parties and the Republican parties, both liberal parties, compete in the arena of ideas of to, move the country, to move the country forward. What we are seeing is the co-option of the conservative project, the Republican Party, in a cult of personality which is fundamentally unconservative, led by Donald Trump, that is authoritarian in nature, that is antithetical to the orthodoxies of the Republican Party and the conservative movement if they, as they have existed over the last 40 years. But it is something more. It is the incitement. Imagine, after a bomb was sent to CNN, the president of the United States goes and says, the press, the free press, is the enemies of the people. And then he says, the anger in the country is caused by the press who reports critically of him. What he is saying to the next sick, sick person on the, on the end of the transmission is, if you take an action, 
It's because they deserve it. What we are seeing, just as we saw young, displaced, evil or sick or just plain losers be radicalized by ISIS, we are seeing the same thing in the United States right now. These two losers, these two sick people, these two evil people, three evil people being radicalized by this right wing propaganda industry. And that's exactly what it is. This whole caravan in the last week of the election is a giant lie. This is Trump's Reichstag fire. It is a lie. And that the United States military, the most powerful armed force in the world, would be deployed at a brigade size unit level to the southern border to stop this caravan, which is a thousand miles away and made up of women and children. The insinuations that it's filled with terrorists and Middle Easterners. Forty percent of the country has opted into an alternate reality. We have to wake up in this country and understand the danger that this presents to all of us. We can't put our heads in the sand. Kellyanne Conway despicably today goes on national television. She said, well, this shooter's motives were because there's an anti-religious sentiment. No, ma'am. The propaganda industry that she commands with the vile president that she serves, abetted by Mark Levin and Rush Limbaugh and Breitbart and Newsbusters and Judicial Watch and all the rest of them have blood on their hands for the incitements that they have made that have triggered and radicalized these crazy people. It is deliberate in intent. He scapegoats minority populations. He alleges conspiracies. He creates a sense of shared and virtuous victimhood, positions himself as the avenger, and there is no cost too high so long as it benefits his narcissism, so long as it benefits him politically. Let me ask you this final question. There's a memory holding that keeps happening. Everything you just said there has been echoed in the past at different moments by Mitt Romney, by Lindsey Graham, by Marco Rubio, by Rick Perry. I mean, on and on and on. Ben Shapiro wrote about this. There was times when the, when the confrontation with Trumpism was new to conservatives where they called it what it was. They saw it for what it was. And then slowly but surely, the Borg assimilates them. And what I find so unnerving is that you've watched one after another after another no longer able to muster the obvious clarity of that diagnosis. All of these people were happy to stand and assert that they believed in the American idea and ideal when the American idea and ideal was not being tested, when it was not under assault, when it was not being contested. What we see is a crisis of profound cowardice in what I would argue is the worst generation of political leadership the country may have ever had. We don't see very many Teddy Roosevelt Jr.'s using his privilege to fight to be the first man off the first landing craft on D-Day, to lead the men ashore. We don't see very much of that in American life anymore. The capitulation to this, the cowardice in the face of the evil that we saw this past weekend, the willful blindness and ignorance about the threat 
that is growing. And the question this week isn't who's going to keep control of Congress or get control of Congress. It's will there be more blood in this country this week heading to an election? And this is what we used to see around the world in banana republics, in emerging democracies, but not here. We don't settle our political disputes and elections with guns and knives. We don't have presidents in this country until now who stoke the American people to be at each other's throats. And after two years of this, this is the deadly consequence. Any Semitic attacks in America rose 60 percent last year, as was pointed out by a writer in The Atlantic magazine whose name I can't recall in the moment. Do we have 60 percent more anti-Semites? Right. Or what has happened? Causally, what has happened? And so when Trump says I'm a nationalist, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, Klansmen celebrate. They are ecstatic. There are people who say that you shouldn't mention the Daily Stormer on a show like this. But you know what? Not mentioning them on a show like this doesn't mean they're not there. It's true. They are there and they are emboldened and they are excited and they feel that they have been mainstreamed by this president and his winks and nods and dog whistles and outright near endorsements. And what a signal he sends. On a day where we see the largest mass killing of Jews in American history, incited by this propaganda machine where his reasons in his final tweets are the exact talking points that spew forth in this vile toxic sewage from talk radio, from the dark corners of the Internet, from Fox News, from Sinclair Broadcasting. It's exactly the same message. And anybody who sits there and says that there is not causality between these events and the incitements is as dishonest as they are blind. We've just heard clips today, starting with the world edition of Now This, breaking down the escalation of violent extremism in the U.S. Criminal Injustice gave a personal commentary about anti-Semitism and free speech after the Pittsburgh shooting. In the Thick discussed the warning signs of violence and anti-terrorism police work. The David Pakman Show explained the now perfectly evident point that anti-Semitism is not a force to be ignored. Democracy Now! spoke with the uncle of White House staffer Stephen Miller about how this kind of violence is the predictable outcome of hate being legitimized. The broadcast told the story of the legal defense being used by defendants convicted of planning terrorist acts, highlighting Trump's incendiary rhetoric as a mitigating factor in their case. And finally, we just heard former GOP strategist Steve Schmidt on All In with Chris Hayes lay out how Trump is stoking and inciting the worst among us. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips on recent right-wing violence. One clip picks apart the ridiculous notion being pushed by outlets like Fox News that escalating violence is a both-sides-do-it sort of situation, and another dives into the freedom of speech implications of Trump's inciting rhetoric and the violence that follows. 
To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And we don't have voicemails today, but I do have a few final thoughts to share. Uh, before that, though, just to mention, we're still waiting on answers to the questions I laid out in the previous episode. Uh, we were discussing privacy, including voter data, the use of public voter data to encourage others to vote, uh, the use of your tax return information being made public as they do in Finland, and transparent payroll as some companies do. So I, I was just curious about your thoughts on all these different levels and, and manifestations of privacy versus invasions of privacy and how it leads to potentially better social outcomes and generally what you think about that. I, I would still love to uh, hear your thoughts on all, all of those questions. Um, but just to wrap up today, I want to talk about stochastic terrorism. That term is in the title of today's episode, and I think there's a really good chance that a lot of you haven't heard it before. It, it became, I don't know if I could say widely used, but it, it um, jumped into a lot of people's consciousness in 2016. I think uh, Rolling Stone used it to describe Trump, particularly when he said that Second Amendment people had a way of stopping Hillary Clinton from appointing judges if she were to be elected. And that was uh, referred to as a stochastic terrorist act, essentially. So I, I have been looking for that term again in relation to today's episode, and not much has been written about it since 2016. Most of the articles that come up are from 2016. There was one I found that's recent, uh, but I thought... Clearly, this is a topic that needs to be addressed again. So to sort of start from the beginning, stochastic or stochasticity is one of my favorite words and concepts, and it means having a random probability distribution or pattern that may be analyzed statistically, but are hard to predict precisely. So basically, stochasticity is the study of randomness. And so when we think of randomness, we think totally unpredictable, you know, just how could anyone know what's going to happen or, or predict that something's going to happen? Because if it's random, it's completely outside the realm of, of anyone's uh, ability to understand, and that is not the case. Randomness, in the case of stochasticity at least, is very predictable, broadly speaking, though it is not predictable in a specific case. And so I first learned about this, this term at least 10 years ago on Radiolab. One of my favorite ever Radiolab episodes was called Stochasticity. And, and they give a few examples just to sort of set the scene and get your mind working in the right way. So uh, their example is, say someone hits a golf ball on a golf course. Now, if you're a blade of grass your chance of being hit by that golf ball is incredibly small. And so if, if you're that blade of grass and the golf ball lands on you, you might think, oh my God, what a miracle. I can't believe I was chosen to have this golf ball land on me. What are the chances? It's amazing. 
But if you look at it from the other perspective, it's not really amazing at all, because of course some blade of grass was going to have that golf ball land on it. It's not a big deal in any sense of the word, and so it's really just about how you look at it. And same goes for people winning the lottery. They think it's a miracle that they won the lottery, but it's not really a miracle because someone was going to win it. And uh, my my own personal analogy that I think I came up with this before I heard that episode of Radio Lab and, and before I understood the concept of stochasticity, I just sort of a little mental exercise I was doing was, you know, imagine yourself in a rainstorm and you stick out your tongue. Now, the chances are pretty good if you stand there long enough, you're going to have a raindrop fall on your tongue. But if you imagine yourself as a raindrop falling from a cloud, the chances of you falling on someone's tongue is pretty small. So the exact same event looks completely different depending on what side you're looking at it from. And that's what we mean by a pattern that may be analyzed statistically, even though it's random. So the randomness means you have no idea which blade of grass is going to get landed on by that golf ball. You have no idea which drop of rain is going to land on your tongue. But statistically analyzed, you can be damn sure one of those things is going to happen. Now, to bring it to stochastic terrorism, that term, I had no idea it was coined so recently. Back in 2011, I read that an anonymous writer apparently coined the term and defined it as the use of mass communication to incite random actors to carry out violent or terrorist acts that are statistically predictable, but individually unpredictable. And that is exactly what we're living through. That's exactly what people were talking about in 2016, talking about, you know, when Trump said Second Amendment people could do something about Hillary Clinton. And that pattern has never ended. The the violent rhetoric has been a constant stream of stochastic terrorism. He is putting out the signal that encourages people to act violently without ever having to ask a specific person to act violently and without even having to request that people act violently. He can frame it in such a way that he should damn well know, because the rest of us do, that that kind of rhetoric will incite violence in some small, statistically predictable, though individually unpredictable, number of people who are going to act violently. So frankly, I think that this is the concept to understand in the era of Trump when analyzing his rhetoric and his relationship with his audience and his fans. Every conversation that tries to go down the path of defending Trump and his rhetoric based on the idea that he's not specifically asking anyone to commit acts of violence, therefore everything he says is covered by the First Amendment, needs to be short-circuited immediately and replaced with a discussion of stochastic terrorism. Because it may be supported by the First Amendment, but it is absolutely indefensible for anyone, much less the President of the United States, to use such rhetoric. 
As always, I'm happy to hear your thoughts. You can keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. And don't forget, I still want your perspectives on privacy, whether it be uh, voter data being public, your thoughts and responses to Finland releasing tax return information publicly, or uh, or corporations who have open payroll policies. Uh, I would love your thoughts on all of those and the interaction between Uh, privacy and the social good. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.